With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio.
Close enough. Okay, okay. Um, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, you know you authored uh, the book The List. Uh, if you could tell us a little bit about the book and uh, just anything you'd like to share with the audience. Well, Gus, <laughs> not much, not a whole lot to say about me. I'm an old man. <laughs> I'm, um, I just turned uh, 73 in August. Wow! Congratulations. Oh yeah, I, I think it was one of one of the French uh, uh, actors when on his 85th birthday they asked him what it felt like to be 85 years old, and he said, uh, uh, "Wonderful, considering the alternative." <laughs> for sure, for sure. That's what I feel about it. But anyway, uh, Gus, I, I'm an attorney okay. and a writer, uh, and I've written a couple books. This this is the only one that's made any splash. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, I was a cop. I was assistant to the chief of police in Atlanta. Hmm. I was the Kentucky Crime Commissioner. I was with the United States Department of Justice. And um, my background is pretty strong in criminal justice, but uh, as if there were such a thing. Okay. Uh, I have um, uh, four children uh, and uh, a dog. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Mr. Wilson's his name. Uh, Mr. Wilson, okay. German Shepherd, and I had to run him out of the office here because he stays with me most of the time. But he when he gets barking, he'll bark until the cows come home. So I had to, <laughs> to park him someplace for a while. And uh, I came to Atlanta about oh, sometime around 1975 from Louisville, Kentucky, where I was a street cop uh, in Louisville. And um, when I came to Atlanta, uh, I, I I couldn't find work. Um, and I jerked uh, sodas for a while, carried newspapers, uh, you know, did, did the whole thing, trying to feed my kids. And um, actually, that's a, I got a little bit out and ahead of the story, because when I came here, I came here for the job of, of, of assistant chief of police. But I ran into a racial buzz somewhere here. I, uh, uh, I had, uh, uh, I call Atlanta's politics zebra politics, uh, where I come from in Kentucky, people are Democratic or, or uh, Republican politicians, Democrat or Republican politicians. Mm-hmm. Here in Georgia, all the politics was black and white. And uh, I was, I'm, I'm a white guy, and I was uh, assigned to the job of, of assistant to the chief of John Inman. Well, John Inman was a white, and... I've always thought he was sort of a white racist. I, I like John personally. Can I can uh, I ask you a quick question there, sir? Yeah. Why did you think uh, you said John Inman? Yeah. Why did you think he was a uh, racist? <coughs> Excuse me, one second. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Good question. Um, I really don't have any basis for that. So, uh, but uh, just 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 the way things went. Uh, who got promoted? Who didn't, etc. Uh, and um, I, I, I've always thought. See, John, John was kicked upstairs. It was really interesting because I came here and uh, Sam Lassell was the mayor. He was a white guy, and then uh, Maynard Jackson was was elected, mm-hmm. and he became the first black mayor of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And uh, Maynard kicked John Emmon upstairs, and they they hired a guy by the name of A. Reginald Eves. You ever heard of him? Can you say his name for me, please? One more. A. Time. Reginald Eves. A. Reginald Eves. No, sir. Yeah. 
Anyway, he was a corrections uh, advisor, in, I mean, corrections uh, uh, chief in, in Boston. And he came here as the commissioner of public safety. And my job switched from being um, uh, assistant to the chief of police to being assistant to the commissioner of public safety. Well, I always said, and, you know, and again, you, you called me on that on a statement about John Inman, because I, at this point, I'm, I'm really not um, uh, ready to back that up. But I always have said that I was too black for John and too white for Reggie was my problem. And, wow, can uh, you break that down for me? Say, say what? Can you break that down for me? Can you can you uh, explain? Yeah, I, now, too black no for John was a racist. He, he was a black racist. Uh, what what, and, what is a what is a black racist? Uh, a guy that well, let me let me give you an example. Uh, Reginald, I, I can tell stories all day long, so you have to be a little bit careful with me. Um, one of the things about Reggie, he came here and he had a bunch of cronies at City Hall. He had he had an entourage. Met, wherever Reggie went, there were ten fifteen people with him, and uh, those those cronies were meeting one day in his office. And uh, he asked me, uh, rather, I was, my office was right next to his. And when the, when the meeting broke up, uh, they all called him Reggie, you know. And I, I said, well, Reggie, would you like me to do it? He said, wait a minute, you don't call me Reggie. You call me Commissioner Eves. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. So uh, anyway, uh, after that, he said, let me tell you a story. So he told me a story of being run out of Atlanta by a white cop. Uh, I don't know if it was true or not, but it sounded true. And um, he, at that time, let me know that uh, he had nothing for white cops, period. So that's why I knew Reggie was, was, was a racist, and that's why I said he was a racist. But anyway, funny story about him. He, When he got here, he was um, followed by a warrant from the city of Boston for... for Okay, they accused him of stealing some furniture from the from the uh, commissioner's office, mm. and um, he um, and, and excuse me one second. I need to tell you and any listeners you have uh, one thing. I had a stroke in 2006, so yes, my sir. mind's not wired as tight as it used to be. So I get I get lost every once in a while. So just bear with me. I'll get back. Yes, sir. So anyway, um, he got here, and he ended up going to the penitentiary here in, in Georgia. And uh, I was writing for a, um, uh, a daily newspaper, a column for a daily newspaper here, and I wrote, I told the story of uh, him telling me, you call me Commissioner Reeves, and I said, I now call him Commissioner EF71695, which uh, was his prison number. So, uh, you know, <laughs> that, that was, I was only under, I was only the, commission, or the commissioner's assistant for about a year. And I left here and went to uh, the uh, Justice Department in Washington. And uh, after that, I uh, I had uh, <laughs> I I sold cars. Uh, I did everything until I I got tied up with the Atlanta murders case. Mm. And one thing I would like to sort of uh, straighten out. I noticed that on your on your promo here, you call it the Atlanta child murders. And, you know, everybody does that, but the truth is it was not the Atlanta child murders. In fact, uh, I wrote a book, and I called it The List. Mm -hmm. And The List was partially about why it was not the Atlanta child murders. Now, mm -hmm. for example, 
Wayne Williams was not convicted of killing any children, period. He was never yes, accused of killing, or even accused, but he was never legally accused of killing any children. Mm-hmm. He was convicted of killing two adults, which were older than he was. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, to call him the Atlanta child murderer is quite a misnomer. And to call these, these cases where one of the victims was, was 28 years old the Atlanta child murders is also a misnomer. Yes, sir. Uh, so I don't know. Ask me anything you want to ask, and I'll try to answer it. Okay. Okay. I will do. Um, I know a lot of individuals that I have spoke with about this case are very uninformed, and I certainly do not claim to be an expert uh, on this case myself. I have read your book. Um, I've read Mr. James Baldwin's book on this subject called Evidence of Things Not Seen, and I've read uh, The Atlanta Child Murders and the Politics of Race uh, by Mr. Headley. Um, I also read Mr. Baldwin. He wrote uh, an article in Playboy magazine. I did not look at the pictures. Uh, he read an, wrote an article in Playboy mag, uh, magazine um, that I think inspired him to go ahead and write the book. But um, I definitely would not say I'm an, an expert on this subject matter by any stretch. So if you could kind of give an overview, and then I have specific things that I'd like to ask you about, but if you could kind of give uh, a summary of what happened just so people can be a little more uh, informed about the case, and then we'll go into details from there. Well, actually – case began we don't know when, uh, because in about 1979, a kid by the name of uh, Yusuf Bell mm-hmm. uh, disappeared, and uh, he, sir? made quite a quite a splash here. Mm-hmm. He was a black child. He was about uh, nine years old, okay. and he made quite a splash because his mother was quite outspoken, and um, made the newspapers, uh, page one, uh, which was a little bit unusual. And um, about two weeks later, there, there was another child uh, found uh, dead. And at that time, I read the paper, and I thought, well, my gosh, that's an old story. I read that one about two weeks ago. Well, the truth is it wasn't an old story. It was a new story, hmm. uh, and it was a second child. And uh, first thing you know, we were finding uh, bodies of young boys, young blacks, all of them blacks. Uh, just about just thrown away, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, we found them in fields. We found them by streams. We found them by rivers. We found them in rivers. Mm-hmm. Uh, found them uh, alongside highways, uh, and um, it got to be quite an international thing. Mm-hmm. And um, they called it the Atlanta Child Murders. Well, that was because at the during the beginning, the the children, the murderers. I'm sorry, the victims were in there anywhere from, oh, seven years old to about 13 years old. But then all of a sudden, it got, it got different. Uh, the, 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 the victims changed. It became older, bigger, uh, larger. Uh, and like I said, it ended up with the one on the list of 28. Well, anyway, uh, the mothers formed a committee, and... Uh, they had a meeting. Uh, it was called the first annual uh, Save Our Children meeting uh, commission, I think. And uh, we met at, at a church. And one of the things that I noticed, they gave a list uh, out. And there were, I think, 
Well, I'm, I'm really getting old on some of this stuff. I think there were nine victims on their list. Mm-hmm. And the police were there, and they had, the mothers had asked them uh, to uh, come and to take, you know, to take some interest in this case, and they didn't think the police were doing enough. And um, the police came up with a list themselves. But it was a very arbitrary list because what happened was the commissioner asked his staff to give him a list of murdered and missing children beginning on the day the mothers came to his office, which is like the 1st of June or something like that. And so he he had a list of nine people. Well, the first thing I noticed, I looked at it, and I said, they're not the same nine people on these lists. Hmm. So... I said, we must have a bigger problem than what we think we have. And on there, there was um, one of these kids, his name was Aaron White. And Aaron was listed as an accidental victim. And I thought to myself, what is an accident victim on this list of murdered children? Mm. And so anyway, we had that meeting, and politically what happened, the 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 police began changing their list a little bit, and what they did was they assigned victims to that list according to their assignment to a new task force they had formed to look into this matter. And the victims on the list basically were the children of the mothers, uh, and one of, one of them, or two of them, were, were females. And one of them, like I said, was an accident. Two of them were females. They didn't. They didn't seem to me to fit together. Uh, and as a matter of fact, it's obvious that they didn't, in the end, uh, fit together. But anyway, w- w- the arbitrariness of the list uh, meant that we didn't know when it started. We didn't know when it ended. We don't know if it ended. Um, because the way you got on the list was. To have a mother who was who was um, uh, very a- active in the mothers' committee. Uh, mm-hmm. One of them, for example, I think it was I think it was Barrett. Uh, his mother actually lied about his age and, and lied about his size so he'd get on the list. Well, the reason for that was by this time people were sending money to Atlanta in buckets uh, from all over the country trying to do some something for these people. Mm-hmm. And uh, nobody knows to this day what, what happened to that money. Nobody has any idea what, what it was, where that money was spent. Uh, I know, for example, um, that uh, Cassius Clay, or Muhammad Ali, uh, later, he, he put up, a, I think it was half a million dollars for a reward fund, but it was never spent. In fact, it was never collected. So, <coughs> excuse me again, Gus. I get a little disjointed here again, but during that, during the collection of the of the award fund, they had a uh, a, um, a gala here, in which Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. were here, mm. uh, and they had one photographer was allowed on the stage to take pictures, and the one photographer who was allowed on the stage to take pictures was Mr. I'm sorry, daggone it, <coughs> was Homer Williams. And Homer Williams was Wayne Williams' father. 
So I thought that was uh, uh, an interesting uh, coincidence, I guess you'd call it. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, the, the um, there was there were arguments. They, 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 the mothers were uh, they they were going all over the country, and they were told by the people, their organizers, that whatever they get, they just stick in their pocket. Of course, they're talking about money. And there were arguments over who was going to go where and who, you know, which, because some of the um, some of the, the the areas were considered more lucrative than others. But um, anyway, uh, uh, the the people who came from as far away as Australia, uh, newsmen. I had newsmen come to me from China, uh, hmm. from uh, uh, from Egypt. From from France, Belgium, uh, Germany. This this was a story that captivated the minds of people all over the world. By the time it was through, I, I wanted to uh, interject really quick, if I could. Um, I know in your book um, you spend time talking about um, some of the parents of the victims and. Uh, some of the correct things that they uh, did or some of the incorrect things that they uh, did or may have done. Uh, I know uh, Mr. Julian Bond, um, I met him and talked with him as well, and and he felt that um, I think he had some criticisms of some of the uh, mothers of the victims as well. Um, I really uh, would prefer to focus on the case as opposed to what the parents uh, may have done wrong or uh, things they may have done inappropriate. in your book, you talked about the media coverage of the case. Uh, in your book, uh, on page uh, 154, uh, you said that never has a major newspaper uh, covered such an important story so poorly. Or excuse me, you didn't make that comment, but it, it is in your book on page 154. Uh, can you about the Journal Constitution? Yes, sir. Can yeah, well, talk? that's true. I mean, they 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 got uh, Pulitzer prizes and all kinds of awards for their coverage of the story. Mm. I can tell you, I, again, I, I, I have at times a, a tendency to, to speak in little vignettes, but I can give you an example. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Weich case, um, when I went out to look at where, Aaron, I'm sorry, Aaron Weich was supposed to have fallen off of a railroad trestle, mm-hmm. and that's how he died, accidentally. Okay. And, you know, I, I just didn't see it. So I went out there, and I couldn't find a railroad trestle. And so uh, I called Mike Edwards, who was a friend of mine, and another Atlanta City Chief of Police or Assistant Chief of Police. Mm-hmm. And Mike and I rode out there, and he couldn't find a, a, a railroad trestle. So it just so happened that Mike was teaching in the, um, the community college here, and one of his students was the officer who made the original run in the White case, who made the original call. Mm-hmm. And he told us where to find it. Well, it turns out it was not a railroad trestle at all. Hmm. It was a highway bridge. And it was like six lanes wide, had wide sidewalks and high railings uh, all the way across it. There was no way anyone could fall off of that highway bridge. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they were either thrown off or they jumped off, one of the two. There's just no question about it. So anyway, one of the things was the, the problem was that People got the idea of the railroad trestle in their mind, and they, the thought was, here's this kid walking across this railroad trestle. In the middle of the night, a train comes along, he he's, he's falls off the railroad trestle. 
Mm. Well, you know the difference between a railroad trestle and a highway bridge, I'm sure. And yes, a railroad sir. trestle, you, all you got is ties, and you can fall between the ties and, 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 and fall anywhere. But um, in any event, I took a couple of uh, reporters, the top reporters from, from the Atlanta Constitution, to that railroad bridge, and I, we drove across that highway, really, across the highway bridge, and I asked them, I said, well, do you all feel, don't you all feel really worried and concerned and everything? And they said, why was that? I said, well, because we just passed over that dangerous railroad trestle that Aaron White was supposed to have fallen off of. They didn't see that that made any difference. Uh, they didn't understand that it made a difference. Well, anyway, it, it turned out that um, uh, White uh, was, he was, Put on the list, finally, and it was ob- it was obvious he was he was a killing. Turns out he lived next door to one of the vi- other victims, mm-hmm. and his he dated. He could he could throw a, a ping pong ball in a in a in a rainstorm and hit the back porch of another victim. So wow. these, the problem I, I saw immediately was these people knew each other. These mm-hmm. victims knew each other. Now why they knew each other, I don't know. I never did find out. But they did know each other. Excuse me. <coughs> I know you talk about uh, in your in your book um, the fact that you already mentioned the arbitrary nature of the list that was compiled by the police. And I know you spend a lot of time in your book talking about the fact that uh, these uh, children knew each other and that there seemed to be some sort of connection. Um, I know you hinted at um, the homosexual aspect uh, of the case in your book. Um, Even at the beginning of the book, you talk about the uh, Cabbage Town uh, homosexual uh, investigation or uh, the, uh, I guess, police raid on Cabbage Town. There was a big child pornography rink in Atlanta, and this was just before the Atlanta child murders began. Um, Could you talk about that aspect of the case and what evidence you found or uh, what made you uh, focus on that aspect in your book? Because uh, in the trial and in the papers, uh, and you point this out in your book as well, uh, it seems that the investigators made a big deal of saying that there was no uh, sexual abuse uh, committed against any of the victims. Well, obviously, there's a difference between sexual abuse and child and, and pornography, mm-hmm. and, and there's a there's a difference between sexual abuse and 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 sex with, with mm-hmm. children. Right. Uh, the the only evidence they had that there was there was no sex was they were talking about no physical evidence of bruising or anything like that, mm-hmm. but there was no way that they could tell whether or not the evidence. Mm-hmm of sexual activity was there because it would have been on the victim, not, mm-hmm. not, on, not on the, uh, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, it would have been on the, the, the killer, not on the victim. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know, for example, that one of the child pornographers, one in fact, he went to the penitentiary at about the same time Wayne Williams went to jail. Uh, his name was Wilcoxon, John David Wilcoxon. He had... Um, uh, he had one of these victims, or two of these victims, at his house on several occasions for sex. Now, we know that. Uh, and also, um, we know that one of the other victims, I think it was Luby Jeter, uh, was selling his body. Uh, and uh, there was a, a, there was 
the, the two older victims, two of the older victims, rather. Um, excuse me again, Gus, I'm sorry. No problem. <clears throat> I told you it's old age. But it's... <laughs> anyway, the, the two of them I know were, were, were sexually involved with, with males. But uh, there, there were, we, we found a house that had all kinds of pictures in it. Well, you know, in, interestingly enough, after Wayne Williams went to jail, after, I mean, after he was convicted, there was another party who, I, you know, I thought was as good a, uh, a, uh, a suspect as he, uh, who was arrested in Atlanta. He, he turns out he was the first, the first person arrested in the state of Georgia under the new anti, uh, federal anti-pornography act. Wow. They they had all kinds of pictures of boys, young boys, that they they got from this guy, and um, they arrested him. Like I say, he was convicted. But anyway, <coughs> he uh, the, the interesting thing was that I don't I don't I talked to the police officer who, who took the pictures out of his office or out of his place, mm-hmm. and he said when he took them into headquarters where. There's all kinds of them, and when he, he carried them back out again, about half of them were gone. And no one ever checked those pictures, according to the police, to see if any of the victims from the from the murders were involved in this picture. <clears throat> um, let me see. In terms of Looking at my notes here to see where I want to go from there. Um, hmm. Alfred Evans. Yeah. Uh, he's one of the victims uh, in the book. Was there any evidence? Uh, of, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. This is me coughing. I don't know what the heck's wrong with me. <laughs> what about Alfred Evans? What do you want to know? Um, I guess number one was. There any evidence tying him with uh, was was the house Gary Street where a lot of the uh, homosexual activity or evidence for homosexual activity amongst the victims? Now, I don't remember any the evidence tying Evans to that house, but I, I'm okay. glad you brought that up because that's another uh, incident. Uh, we know, for example, who one of these victims spent his last night on earth in bed with, mm-hmm. and that was an old man. I, I forget the man's name now. But anyway, he went to the penitentiary, too, at the same time that uh, mm-hmm. or was arrested at the same time Wayne Williams was. And uh, that, that, that's, that's important to understand for one reason. People have the idea, they have the, it's a non-secular, but they have the idea mm-hmm. that the murder stopped when Wayne Williams was arrested. Yes, sir. Uh, not so. Uh, the, the murders of young children stopped two or three months before he was arrested. And the murders of victims like he was t- accused of killing never stop in Atlanta. I mean, there were victims on that list, for example, who were stabbed, bludgeoned, suffocated, uh, strangled, um, st- a shot, uh, but only one was shot. And interestingly enough, that was the kid that was found about 100 yards from Evans. His name was Smith. They would never put Smith on the list. and they w- I'm sorry, again. <coughs> and the reason they didn't put Smith on the list was because he was shot. And 
you can see that what the police were trying to do was they were trying to keep any shooting off that list because if you put victims who were shot on that list from the ages of 7 through 28 uh, in that period, that list would have been 100 times longer. You, you see what I'm saying? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So anyway, they, they wouldn't put him on. So the, the problem was Smith and Evans, had, had well, they had been to a party the night before. They, they knew each other, not well, but they knew each other. They, they were dressed exactly alike. Mm. Uh, and um, one of them was found on Misty Lake Road by a woman picking up cans. And, a, and when the police were there looking for that body, 100 yards away, they found the other body. Well, they couldn't identify either one of them at the time. And um, I got thinking about it. They, they, the newspaper uh, wrote an article saying that they couldn't identify the victims from their, uh, uh, I mean, couldn't identify either one of the victims from the dental charts of Alfred Evans. And I thought, wait a minute, you know, I wonder if it's possible. Of course it's possible. I wonder if it happened. If, if they had Smith laying there on the uh, slab mm-hmm. and they checked Evans' dental charts against him and couldn't make a ma- match. And by golly, you know, that's what happened. Uh, it turns out later on that um, they did identify Evans, mm-hmm. although his mother said that was not her son. And this was... This was at least the second parent that claimed that. But anyway, she said it wasn't his son, her son, and there was a reason she said it wasn't her son. First of all, her son had pierced ears, and that body had no pierced ears. Hmm. The, uh, the second thing was that um, uh, he had a dental plate, and the dental plate wouldn't fit. It couldn't make it fit. So, you know, you wonder... How good these these uh, identifications were, mm. and in one instance at least they were it was terrible. And that was <coughs> there's one victim on that list who's still missing, uh, and I can't remember his name right now. I can look it up, but anyway, this kid uh, was a body was found off Super Road in, in South Atlanta, and one of one of the things they found on the body was that it was a springtime crime scene. Now the reason they know it was a springtime crime scene is that there were vegetation was growing through the holes in the in the skull, hmm. and if it had been a fall crime scene, there would have been the body would have been or the the thing would have. I'm sorry would have been on leaves and um, uh, pine uh, needles, but it wasn't. It was on the ground, and it was covered with leaves and pine needles, which means that it was a spring crime scene. Well, one of the victims, the victim they they identified as being the, the, the remains they found at that spot, he disappeared in the fall. But this other victim I was talking about, the one they never found, he disappeared in the spring. Hmm. That, that that victim had a chin that was recessed. So did the victim who disappeared in the spring. Well, what the medical examiner said, and I, I never will forget it. I was listening to the radio, and I was coming home from someplace, 
and they talked about this body, and they said that this was, they, they identified it because it was the only child that was still missing. And I thought to myself, what are you talking about? First of all, you had this other victim that was on their list that was still missing. Mm. And secondly, who knows how many children were missing in Atlanta mm. at that time? Who knows how many children were missing in the world that, you know, that came through Atlanta? So anyway, <coughs> the, the medical examiner said, if there were another child missing, this identification or this, the identity of this child would be baffling. <laughs> Obviously, it was baffling to him anyway. Wow. So uh, it, it, it just the whole case was like that. I mean, there, there were there were times when the when the police they found two vi- the, the the bodies of, or the I'm sorry the remains of two victims together in a wooded area. And the police ended up mixing their, their bones and, and, and their teeth up in, in one bag. Wow. And, and I know that the, I think it was the DA, he was going to charge the police with tampering with the crime scene for, for the, the mess that they made. Wow. And, you know, one other thing, the, these searches, the so-called searches, the only search that ever turned up anything uh, you know, and, and people went out on, on weekends, was the first search that the police allowed civilians to attend. And that that particular search found the body of Latonya Wilson. Mm. <coughs> and interestingly enough, that that body was found on a piece of ground that ended, that owned, I'm sorry, was owned by a uh, uh, Atlanta city commissioner. And... Wow. Uh, it was interesting to me uh, what the, you know what possible uh, uh, connections there might be there, but never found any. But anyway, it's just it's amazing the police searches. There was a time there was a, a woman found murdered in an apartment, and the police went there and they searched the apartment. And when they got through, they found out her child was missing, and this was a baby, you know, like like six months old, something like that. Mm-hmm. So somebody said, where's the child? Well, they didn't find it. Guess what? The child's grandmother went to the house to clean it up so her son could come back in it. And under the cushion of the of the couch in the front room, they found this child. Wow. Yeah. And so they asked uh, uh, the chief of police uh, how he could explain that. And he said that that room wasn't part of the crime scene to be searched. Wow. The next room over, you know? So it was wow. those kinds of things. When I, when I say that the, 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 the it was messed up and, and the, 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 the reporters, they didn't understand. They, they, when, when Wayne Williams was on that bridge that morning, they, <coughs> I'm sorry, they found, they, 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 did this big article saying that his alibi for being on that bridge, I, I said, wait a minute, you don't need an alibi for being on He was on the bridge. There's no such thing as an alibi for being somewhere. You follow me? You, yes, you, you, can, you can have an alibi that says you couldn't have been someplace, but there's no such thing as an alibi that says you were someplace. Because... <laughs> It, it, it made a big difference because they, they, 
they made they made a front page story out of the fact that Wayne Williams' alibi for being on that bridge, and what they what they were talking about was his mother had gotten a, a call from a woman, and she had wanted to to meet with Wayne. And I don't know whether you know I don't know whether Wayne killed anybody, but I do know his mother didn't. Uh, the nice old woman, and she <coughs> excuse me, Gus. She admired, I mean, she admitted that she took the note and she gave it to Wayne and she wrote the wrong number on it. He tried to call it, couldn't get anybody to answer. Turns out it was the number of a business. The police made a big deal that this number that he gave them was the number of a business, had the telephone company come in and testify and all that kind of stuff. It made no difference because he, he said he couldn't reach her. And so, the, but, the, but the newspaper played this big deal about Wayne Williams gave him a false telephone number. Well, mm. he didn't. His mother gave him a false telephone number. One of the strange things about that, uh, about two, three years after Wayne went to the penitentiary, I, ca I can't remember that woman's name anymore, but it was an unusual name, a little bit unusual anyway. Let's, let's just say for, for argument's sake, it was Mrs. Jones. Okay. Uh, and... One day I got a telephone call, and they told me, there's a Miss Jones on the phone for you from, I think it was Seattle, from Seattle. Wow. And I thought, my God, they found her, or she found me, or what? Turns out it was somebody else. And oh. she <clears throat> she was interested in getting a copy of the book, but it just really rattled me for a minute, you know. Wow. That woman, we we looked for that woman forever, uh, and with, with no results. Wow, I uh, I wanted to also call out from from your book because you brought up how um, just the arbitrary nature of who got on the list and the fact that um, if they had included victims who were shot, that the list would you know would have exploded, uh, and uh, the notion that the victims, older victims, stopped when Mr. Williams went to jail is incorrect. Um, the official number of victims on the official quotes uh, list is 29. In your book, you have an additional 63 victims uh, who were not on the list. Um, That's right. That would have fit the same arbitrary parameters that got on the list. Mm -hmm. Follow me? I don't think, I don't think any, any, necessarily any of those victims were killed by the same person, as I don't think all the victims on the list were killed by the same person. Right. But all I said was, see, the, Slayton, he was the DA, he made a statement <coughs> that, um, uh, what was it, um, the murder stopped when Wayne went to jail. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, you can't say that. And the reason you can't say it is because of the arbitrariness of this list, which I, I went into a little bit when we, when we first started. Yes, sir. We don't know whether the murder stopped, and he he finally understood what I was trying to say, but it was too late because people became convinced that quote the murders stopped when Wayne Williams was arrested, hmm. and that's that that's the, the kind of non sequitur that puts a lot of people in the penitentiary. Hmm. I, I also I wanted to. Uh 
you you touched on Latanya Wilson. Um, this entire case uh, really um, incredibly sad. Uh, the more informed I became about it, just uh, I lived in Atlanta for a little while as well and was able to talk to a few people. Uh, again, very I was very surprised just at the number of people uh, who are really not informed about this case at all. I even you know have spoken to a lot of people who live in Atlanta and are uh, who are older than me, uh, and they really are not that informed about it. They you know they know Wayne Williams went to jail, but other than that, they really couldn't tell you much of anything about what happened or and these are people who lived through the event um the latonya wilson incident especially that one i just found it extremely creepy you uh described it in your book how uh, there was a witness uh who said that they saw an individual uh climb through the window of her home and exit the building uh with her body uh and you said that that was uh i believe you said that was the the body that the first search that the police allowed citizens to participate in that was the body that they found Latonya Wilson is that correct that's correct okay um the interesting thing was the police never went to all these scenes that that was one of the things really that I could prove the police never went to all of the scenes the the task force as a group never Mm -hmm. went to all of these scenes some bodies were found or where they were abducted from where they never went to scenes where the bodies were found or where they were abducted from? Well, guess there were at least three scenes for each murder, mm. or at least uh, there were three things to be considered for each murder. Mm. One was where the victim lived. Okay. One was where the victim was last seen. Okay. And the third was where the victim was found. Okay. And I'm, what I'm saying is that the police task force never went as a body to all of those scenes. Wow. Some of them went to two of these, some went to three over there, some went to four over here. And so they missed a lot of the connections in this case. Wow. And uh, one of the things they missed, for example, Latonya Wilson lived downstairs. But you know who lived upstairs right over? Nathaniel Carter. Nathaniel Cater. And Nathaniel Cater was the last one uh, put on the list. Latonya Wilson was one of the first ones put on the list. Wow. Lived in the same apartment building. Wow. Wow. Did And uh, you yourself, did you go to all three scenes of each victim, where the, the last place they were seen, uh, their place of residence, and where the body was found? Did you go to all three scenes for all of the victims? Insofar as I could find them, yes. In other words, wow. I'm just not too sure exactly where some of them were mm. because – it's like it's like the Latonya Wilson thing. Mm-hmm. <coughs> her body or her remains were found in the middle of the field. Now, exactly where in that field, I don't know. I went to the field. You understand what I'm saying? Oh yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes. Sir. I went. Yes, I went to every scene. In fact, I went there. I, I went dozens of times, and, and I went backwards and forwards. And it's really interesting. I don't know if you thought about this or not in your life, but you know, there there are a couple things I learned by making that trip that I, that, I, that set well with me when I went to Seattle uh, to look, look work in the uh, Green River case. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one place a person goes more often than any other place in the world. Um, I don't care where you go. You, you can go to work, you go home. Go to your girlfriend's house, you go home. Go to boyfriend's house, you go home. Go to church, you go home. Go to school, you go home. Every trip ends up at home. Right? Yes, sir. 
So when you when you put this these victims together on a map, which is what I did, mm-hmm. and and you start riding those streets, you realize, hey, this sucker lives somewhere on this route. <laughs> you follow me? Yes, sir. Okay. And so another thing I found out was, you know, I don't know if you thought about this, but sometimes when you're when you're riding and you go one direction, the streets are very smooth. You just you just turn into this, you know, there, there's a curve. You come back the other direction, there's a stop sign there. Uh, it, it's, it's like um, um, it's a different it's a different world when when you're going one way than when you're going the other, and um, that's why I thought that the police should look at the uh, at the connections. The FBI agreed with me, by the way. Uh, I, I I was asked to to show my map to um, uh, a group of FBI agents, and um, they uh, one, one of them stopped me after the show. Well, interesting story. The FBI building at that time in Atlanta was like a shotgun cottage. You, you, you started an office here, and you went through this door, through that door, through the next door, until you went to the end of the offices. And um, this, this one FBI agent asked me to meet him there, and I met him, and I spread my map down on the on, on a table there, and the first thing you know, I looked around, there were 20 people standing there, and when I got through, one of them came to me and said, you know, he said, you, it makes, what you're saying makes a lot of sense, so we've got it the same way, except we've, uh, we've, we've thought of them in clusters and not as connected in, in, in this respect, but it, it was a time when the police were, they were following psychic leads, you know, hmm. and I, I'm telling you, I, I don't know what your feelings are, but and really in this instance don't really care because psychics are pure BS. <laughs> they're, 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 they don't exist. It, it doesn't happen, you know. And I, I met enough of them during this during this case to understand that. But the police were following psychic leads. <coughs> wow. Instead of going out there and parking on these streets and seeing who the hell was using them. Mm. You know, who, who was coming by there three times a day or four times a day and checking them out. But I don't know. Uh, again, I, I can tell stories about the bungling <laughs> of case that would take us into next year sometime. Wow. I, I, I want to go back to the map because that was something that I found uh, pretty fascinating in reading your book uh, in, in the amount of detail that you – um, put into displaying and kind of giving uh, the geography of this uh, case and showing uh, how close uh, these victims were. And I also wanted to pull in uh, the explosion uh, at the uh, Bowen Homes that happened during the oh, middle of this case. Go ahead. Um, you said uh, in your book, this happened in October of 1980, correct, the explosion? I think it was, yeah. Okay, uh, which was right in the middle of uh, this you know, whole ordeal. Um, do you want to kind of share uh, with the listeners uh, what happened with the explosion, uh, your thoughts on that? Well, it's again, it's a matter of semantics and people not understanding the importance of words. Mm. Everybody said that was an accident. Well, no, it wasn't an accident, but it wasn't a murder either. You follow me? What happened was a maintenance man, they were having trouble with his boiler and the maintenance man, when he tied off the safety valve. And so the pressure builds up and the thing exploded. 
Well, it wasn't an accident because he did something and made it happen. You follow me? Mm-hmm. But the people really got upset. I mean, they thought they thought for sure that we were looking at, at some kind of genocide. And mm-hmm. um, the uh, I know the mayor, <coughs> Mayor Jackson, came to the scene, and he was booed. And, boy, after that, the political things started happening in this case. For example, that is after the, the Bowen Homes boiler explosion that we got, first of all, the reward, that we got uh, curfew, uh, that we had police going door to door. These kind of things weren't happening until the mayor got booed. And when he got booed, I mean, he kicked some butt over there at that police department, and, and they did their thing, whatever that thing was, it was, and it wasn't an effective thing, but they did it. And, you know, when I say it wasn't effective, do you realize I, I looked at every paper in, in some of these police departments. The Cab, the Cab Police Department was a member of the task force, and their chief, when he found out some of the things I, have, I was talking about, he called me. Or no, we, we met at, at, a, at a meeting. My wife was, uh, was, his, was the secretary of the Georgia Organized Crime Prevention Council, and he was the chairman. And um, they, had a, they had a meeting, and I went with her. And I met him, and I started talking about this stuff, and he said, my God, I didn't know any of this. And he's the chief, chief of police in that, in that state, county. So anyway, he, he had a, uh, a, uh, a meeting of his staff afterwards, had me come there and explain the, the, the map to, to his staff. And he asked them, um, had, they, had they ever seen this, this map? And one of them said, well, we've seen it, but we didn't think there was any difference, uh, you know, made any difference, so we just disregarded it. <laughs> and I am really sorry, because I'm really tied up. So, um, so anyway, what were, we, what were we talking about a minute ago? Uh, I was asking about the uh, the Bowen Homes oh, explosion, yeah. and you were relating it to uh, showing your map to other individuals and them being really surprised at you know the information that you had gathered. Oh yeah, um, another thing, for example, when you mentioned Bowen Homes in the map, uh, one of the people listed in, in that '63 list is is the, the uncle of a victim that's on the list, and um, his his sister or his his sister, the mother of the victim and the sister of the victim, to this day, to this day, thinks that her, her brother was killed by the same person her son was killed by. Wow. But it's it, it, amazing when you look at what the police do and what they don't do. And it goes on. I, when I went to Seattle, I found exactly the same things. Really? I mean, I could have written their story uh, before I ever got there. Because they were they were doing and not doing the same things, and uh, yeah, you got a guy. I don't know if he's still there or not, uh, but uh, as a sheriff was, um, he was a member of Congress uh, last time I heard, wow. and he was smart. Uh, he, he wrote a book. He's a very smart guy, and he worked his tail off. But they were making the same mistakes we made in Atlanta. Wow, wow. I uh, I wanted to go back with the uh, explosion uh, at the Bowen Homes. Um, because uh, just I've seen several people when they talk about this event, they end up going there and uh, kind of some of the similar comments that you made and how much how much of an uh, impact that that had on people and how that really um, just made a lot of people feel like this is you know 
genocide. Uh, this is yeah. an attack on black children. Uh, this is, you know, this is just going crazy at this point. Um, you said in your book, um, I'm, I'm reading from the book now, you said, uh, I trembled when I discovered that Bowen Holmes lay on the route that I had drawn two months earlier in August of 1980. Did anyone else realize it? Did anyone that else? was on the route? Right. That Holmes on the route? No. No. Again, no one else was paying any attention to that route. And uh, it's interesting. Do you know if Wayne Williams is the killer? Mm. I have no idea whether he killed anyone. But if he is the killer, that map took me and two police officers right by his house. Wow. I mean, we drove past his house because it was on the route. Wow. With uh, Mr. Williams, I know uh, when you talk about the Wayne Williams case, inevitably the uh, the fibers uh, in the vehicles uh, comes up. Could you uh, talk about that? Uh, your feelings about it, and you know the the impact that that had on ultimately uh, convicting him of the two uh, the two victims that he was convicted of. Sure. First of all, I hope you're following what's what's happening with the the, the great uh, crime lab. Uh, and, and the fact that they don't know what they're talking about. And I said that 30 years ago when I wrote this book. Now they're finding out that they're, they're having all kinds of people out of the penitentiary because of the phony work that's been done by crime labs. Mm. So anyway, the fibers, it, it, it's amazing. There, there was only one unusual fiber in all of those fibers they found. And I say it's unusual because it wasn't a, a unique fiber. It was an unusual fiber. And that was what they called a Wellman 731B, I think, 237B. Anyway, um, it was a rug fiber. And it was, it was unusual because it was made in an attempt to beat a patent of DuPont. And DuPont had, had this trilobal fiber. And so Wellman tried to, to put out a fiber because the, the fiber had a lot of advantages in, in making a rug. And... Um, they, 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 what they did was they, they flattened one of the lobes so that it wouldn't be the same as the uh, uh, DuPont fiber. And, you, you know, I don't know if you know how, how artificial fibers are made, but they're, they're, it's almost like they're squeezed out of a, out of a cookie uh, dough thing. <laughs> they, they come out the end, and that's the fiber. I'm now aware. Hello. I, oh, I just man. I was just told I was in something, some kind of queue. You got it. I'm sorry. I said I was just told that I am now in the something queue. Oh. 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 Okay. I I, uh, I think they're uh, the blog the show is uh, giving me the timer for how much how much time we have to go on the show. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, the the fiber, the one fiber, it's interesting because this fiber was found on I think seven victims, and that was it. Uh, one of those victims was this. This is a, this is a story that would take another hour to tell, but one of those victims was named Clifford Jones, 
Okay. Clifford Jones had the fiber. I know that Clifford Jones was not killed by Wayne Williams. Clifford Jones was killed by another fellow, and, and his name's escaping me right now. I don't want to take time to look to find it. But anyway, that fellow was, he was uh, the manager of a laundromat. There were three eyewitnesses that saw that man carry that body out of his, out of his wow. laundromat after the, after the killing. One eyewitness who saw the killing itself. Wow. And the, the police, the, the, the prosecutor wouldn't use that. He wouldn't, he wouldn't even let Jones be in the, in, the, in the group. But he had that fiber. Now, the reason he wouldn't let him in that group is because if someone else killed him, what does that say about the fiber mattress? Wow. It wow. says, crap. They're, they're not worth a crap. <laughs> Most of those fiber mattresses were, were matched with, with cottons, that can be found at Kmart or Walmart or any place. Blue jeans. Wow. It was that one unusual. With, can you can you share with our listeners? Um, the, for a lot of people, um, and I, Mr. James Baldwin, he talks about it in his book as well, and I know you do in your book also. The fact that the way the evidence with the fibers was used, it gave the impression that this was, you know, hard scientific evidence that could not be refuted and for a lot of people it gave the impression that hey this is you know this is this is the smoking gun he had to do it and what you're just saying with the example that you just gave uh totally refutes that um can you speak to how um the fiber evidence kind of overwhelmed people and also because they really couldn't understand the scientific part of it go ahead well one of the reasons it overwhelmed is because they had all of these so-called pattern cases. Mm. See, those fibers they're talking about, those unusual fibers, they, they spent three days testifying about this Wellman fiber, but that Wellman fiber wasn't on either one of the victims that he was accused of killing. Wow. It was on other victims. And what they did, they brought those other victims' cases in and, and, and talked about the fibers in their cases mm. as if they were the cases that he's being tried for. And, and that's why they left Jones out, because they didn't want his fibers in there. <laughs> and I tell you, I went, I went to um, Dalton where this fibers made, mm. and they 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 made this this story up about how rare this fiber was. Well, it turns out it wasn't all that rare at all. They they made it look like uh, it was uh, a, a certain kind of apple. When actually what it was was all kinds of apples that were baked in the pies, because we had we had fibers. The only thing that, that differentiated those fibers from millions of other fibers, some of which were sold to car carpet manufacturers, for example, and dyed any who knows what color was that green color, and and though that green color, what they talked about was fibers in a certain rug. Well, that particular rug happened to be one of three or four or five different rugs of this made with the same fibers. But, for example, commercially, they didn't count all the rugs that were, or all the fibers that were out there in commercial institutions. There, there, there were that fiber could be found in hotels, motels, um, apartment houses, uh, funeral homes. It could be found in a lot of places. 
but they didn't count those when they when they started talking about how rare the fiber was because they counted only those fibers that were in the that were made into a rug like Wayne Williams' rug. You, you, wow. you with me? Yes, sir. So it, it was just baloney. The, the whole thing, the whole fiber thing, was absolute baloney. Wow. And um, they, the, the, worse than that was the blood thing. They had these two two spots of blood mm. that, that they claim were found in the in the car. Uh, they were, but they were they were found inside the matting of the back seat, underneath the factory installed cover. Not 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 a seat cover, but the factory installed vinyl. Okay. Mm. One of the things about that was there was no no line tracing that blood from the seat down to the spot where they were found. Which means those those blood spots were put on there before the cover was put on. Wow. With me? Wow. <coughs> so <clears throat> I'm sorry. On top of that, at that time they had a problem. And the problem was that they had one victim whose blood type, not necessarily, see, they had no DNA back then. Okay. And they, they typed this victim's blood, 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 and they said, okay, this blood spot matches with William Barrett. But the other one didn't match with any victim. Hmm. So they put another victim on the list. Wow. Right, a 28-year-old man who, who, who himself was a child molester. Wow. Whose, whose grandmother kicked him out of the house because he molested the child she was watching for somebody else. Wow. And the, the day his body was found, this is interesting, the day his body was found, he moved into an abandoned apartment building with a fellow in, in the same apartment building as another guy by the name of Gates. Gates was the guy who, who ran over Angel Bacon. And, and she was one of the non-victims, okay? Wow. One of the ones that didn't make the list. And uh, so anyway, he had a butcher knife over the, over the visor of his car. Mm. And it st- stuck through the visor. Two slots were made, and there was a butcher knife stuck in there. So anyway, on the day that this guy was killed, he moved into the same house that Gates was living in. Wow. Was found murdered with a knife stabbed with a knife wound on a downtown Atlanta stri- sidewalk, wow. which didn't match with anything else in the case. And, and at the time, at the time, the police said, "Ah, oh, he, he's not a part of this case at all." And I agreed with them; he wasn't a part of this case. But when it came time for that blood, he was the only victim they could find anywhere who had that type of blood. So they put him on the list so they could wow. use his testimony. Or use testimony in his case to say that Wayne Williams killed him because his blood spot was found in that seat cover. Wow, that's true. I mean, I'm not making this up. You know. Wow. I uh, I, I'm glad that you touched on in in the course. I'm glad that you touched on the fact again, Mr. Williams, only charged with, uh, or excuse me, only convicted uh, with. Nathaniel uh, Cater and Jimmy Ray Payne. Uh, only charged those two also. He was never charged any other victim. Right. Never charged and only convicted of those two victims, uh, and they were both adults, not children. Um, however, during the course of his trial, they used evidence from 
the other cases that he was never charged with. That's um, right. Can you, I guess, just talk about, I mean, one, I don't even know if that's constitutional, um, but just can you talk about, um, I don't just the merits of that and if that is a correct thing and exactly how um, that could happen and be considered, you know, a just thing to do in a court of law? Well, it is constitutional, unfortunately. In Georgia, they're called similar transactions. In, in Seattle, they're called something else. I forgot. I looked it up while I was up there. Uh, but anyway, they're called similar transactions. And what's supposed to happen is these cases are supposed to be uh, admitted after a judge gets an opportunity to look at them to show the killer's plan, bent, scheme of mind, etc. but not to show that the individual who, who's charged with the case killed anybody. Well, <laughs> you, you can tell jurors all they want, disregard this, you know, but they're, they're going to regard what they want to regard, right? right? So anyway, a, a similar transaction to me should not be admitted. I'm an attorney, but I understand it's legal to admit them. But that should not be legal as far as I'm concerned uh, for several reasons. One, you realize if a person is convicted of a crime, you cannot raise that conviction in evidence in the courtroom unless he mentions it. If he mentions it, you can raise it. But you, you can't bring that up. You can in the, in the sentencing phase, but not in the guilt phase. You with me? Yes, but here, here we go. Here's a, here, here are ten cases in this, in this case of what they call similar transactions that Wayne Weaver was never charged with. He, he was never accused of, really, legally, of killing those victims. But all that evidence was submitted. And I don't think it's right. Do you think that played a major role in the conviction of Mr. Williams, the use of evidence from those ten cases that he was never never charged with? Of course it, it played a major role because it looked like they had all this evidence. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We had we had people up there testifying that Wayne Williams was seen. I remember this woman got up there and testified. She saw Wayne Williams with one of these pattern case victims in front of Mrs. Winter's chicken house on such and such a date and such and such. And, and, and I, I wrote a note to Al Binder. He was the, he was the chief uh, attorney. And I said, Al, that's not possible. And the reason it's not possible is because this kid was in the ground then. He'd been buried three months before that. Wow. And so anyway, that made, that finally made the Court of Appeals, or, the, or the, actually the Georgia Supreme Court, and the Georgia Supreme Court said, well, that's for the trier of fact, and the trier of fact is the jury. And if the jury wanted to believe it, that this woman saw this man in a situation where they could not have possibly seen him, that was up to the jury. So that's a stamp. Wow. 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 Now, again, I don't know if Wayne Williams killed anyone. I don't think he did, but I don't know. But I know he didn't kill one, Clifford Jones. And by the way, that that, that Clifford Jones case is one of one of the things that, that you need to know. The guy who who was actually killed him about oh, a couple years ago, Clifford Jones' brother came to me and he wanted to get justice for his brother. Now, nobody had ever been charged with their brother's case. 
And so I thought, well, Clifford, I don't know, I mean, I, I forget his name. It wasn't Clifford, that was the one who was killed. Um, I said, I don't know what I can do, but I can put you in touch with the with the sheriff in DeKalb County, and he's the one who investigated that case. So we went to the sheriff's office and we met with the sheriff. The sheriff spent a couple of hours with us. He agreed. He, in fact, in fact, he had been he had been transferred from the homicide squad to writing tickets at the airport for saying on Channel Two that Wayne Williams was not the killer in that case. Wow. Yeah, that's true. Wow. And he sued and he won. But that made channel that made uh, I think page seventeen of the letter. <laughs> anyway, he he sent her and he said, you know, he said, I'm going to charge that son of a myself. Now he t- we're talking about the guy that we he knew and I knew killed this kid, right? Mm. So anyway, uh, he he called me back in a couple of weeks and said, I got bad news for you. I said, what's that? He said, he died of AIDS. Mm. In the- so that I mean, that means there's never going to be any more said about it. But anyway, guess how he got in the penitentiary? Oh. He he raped a child, a male child. Never mm. found out about it. She didn't want to put her son through that, so she she called the police and claimed he raped her. And wow. he went to the penitentiary raping this woman, who's the mother of the child he raped. Wow. <laughs> it's, Criminal justice is a funny story, my friend. A very funny story. Wow. I, uh, man, <laughs> I, uh, I know a lot of people have, you know, various opinions on uh, enforcement officials and, and police departments and uh, the justice system, so-called justice system. Uh, I know uh, just reading your book and uh, just speaking with you uh, and just, hearing these stories of uh, inept uh, police work and, and just deceit, out-and-out deceit that goes on. Wow. Um, I know in your book, uh, and again, you know, you, you said repeatedly, you know, you, you can't say for certain, you know, whether Wayne Williams did, killed anybody at all, if he killed some, if he killed them all, you, you know, can't say for certain. In your book, um, you, you know, put forth a theory that there could have been um, – a kingpin killer where he used uh, victims or procurers, I believe you referenced them as, who would go out and get uh, some of the smaller children, younger children, uh, perhaps for uh, homosexual activity, and perhaps this kingpin killer or killers uh, eventually just did away with uh, the younger children that were involved in this and the older children that may have been used to go out and get uh, children and I believe you said uh, uh, Pac-Man was one of the the key uh, children uh, in right. all of this. Could you kind of put forward that theory uh, for the listeners um, and you know kind of explain that in as much detail as you could? Well, first of all, my theory. I, this is about the only theory I have. I, 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 the rest of the stuff I've talked about is fact. Yes, sir. This is pure made-up boilerplate theory of mine. Okay. Yes, sir. And I want I want to make that make sure people understand that. Yes, sir. What I thought could have happened is it sounded to me. See, we had these bunch of children were, were, were found dead, and all of a sudden, it was not a bunch of children anymore. It was a bunch of teenagers, and all of a sudden, it wasn't a bunch of teenagers anymore. It was a it was some it was a group of adults, hmm. and I thought, well, maybe just maybe. The adults were the were the 
kingpin or, or, the, or the linchpin, if you want to call it that, they were using these procurers to find these young kids. <coughs> and on top of that, it's possible, I think, that some of the procurers actually murdered the victims. I, I'm not sure of that. Again, I don't understand. I don't know that. That's just a theory. But it does, you do really get interested when you find out how many of these victims were known by people like Patman. Patman was a victim himself. Mm. And I remember the night that I went with Channel 11 News Crew. What happened was we were having a meeting at Channel 11, and someone called in and said that this child, uh, I forget his name, doggone it, his name was Bell, I think, but it wasn't, wasn't the... Anyway, this, this, they said this child had been seen at a, a march downtown that day, and it was on uh, their TV uh, uh, footage. So we decided to go to the kid's house, show the footage to the parents and the siblings, and find out if that was, in fact, their son, because at that point he was missing. He wasn't, he wasn't considered murdered. And uh, we got there, and as we were pulling in, there was a car coming down the street the other way, and he was headed on the wrong side. He pulled in front of it and parked headed the wrong way. This guy jumped out, and it was an Atlanta police detective. Hmm. And we just followed him in the house. And he asked a question of the, of the, of the mother about the, uh, um, or rather, about, of, of one of the sisters about the Aaron, um, I'm sorry, another case, another case completely. It had nothing to do with her son. And um, then he left. And I'm sitting there on the, on the steps, and I, I, I asked one of the kids, I said, do you know if, you, if your brother knew Patrick uh, Rogers? Because I was, I was seeing all these connections, Patman, 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 kept coming up everywhere. And about that time, this voice came from the other room and said, no, he didn't know Patman, but I knew him. And he was his older brother. And he knew Patman quite well. They, they, they had worked together at, um, at the, uh, uh, one of the places where Pat Manning lived. And anyway, turns out Pat Man knew him. Uh, and this, when we got through talking to this guy, we found out that so-and-so knew so-and-so, and so-and-so knew such-and-such, and so-and-so knew this guy, and that guy knew him. And it was, it, we found all those connections uh, just in this one conversation. So the next morning, David Page, who's with NBC now, I think, it, uh, he, he went to the chief of the task force, the office, I think it was a sergeant then, and he asked him, he said, you know, we, he told what happened, we went to this house, blah, 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 and he, he said, the question is, sh should your man have found out, what? no, no, and, and Johnny, Johnny Sparks, that's who it was, the, the sergeant Sparks said, well, I don't know any of this you're talking about. And I'm talking about the connection. He said, I don't know any of this. And he said, well, it's strange that you don't, because one of your men was right there at the same time we were. And I guess the question is, should he have asked the question we asked? Mm. Sparks kicked him out of the office. Wow. <laughs> and, and we never did get a, a, a quote from Sparks that day. But anyway, uh, it was amazing, because this is the kid, by the way, who we know who he slept with. And it, he was one of the ones that was in the house on Gray Street. We mentioned mm. earlier one of the, yes, one sir. of the three or four uh, that was that went to that house occasionally, and uh, it turns out he he was dead, um, and 
you know, the old man that slept with him went to jail. And he wasn't even mentioned at the trial. Hmm. His name didn't even come up. Wow. Wow. Incredible. It is incredible. And it's amazing. I mean, the people... See, again, it's words, Gus. It's calling this a child murder, for example. I tell you what that, what the, how bad that got. At the trial, at the trial, the guy who was defending Wayne Williams, we're talking about uh, uh, the, the the defense attorney. Yes, sir. He had arranged for a child pathologist to testify. And I told him, I said, hey, what's he going to testify about? These are adults. Mm. And he, he, he was so taken by the child murders that he got hung up in that. Wow. And, and, and the press, to this day, to this day, they call him the Atlanta child murderer. Yes, sir. And, and it's yes, amazing. Sir. And I can't, I, every time they do it, I write them a letter. They don't make a difference. They, they don't care. <laughs> but, but at least they give me a, 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 the... Uh, uh, the, the solace of knowing that uh, I could tell him something. Oh yeah, you you did your part. That that is one of the key things uh, of many that I that I really uh, appreciated in your book that you continue to talk about uh, how it is it is simply inaccurate uh, to label this uh, the Atlanta child yeah. murders. It's just not it accurate. Is, and it, it it affected the whole investigation mm. down to and including the trial. Wow. And it, it's it's a it, you know it, it's like. The police basically, where, where most police officers miss out, is they didn't take enough logic courses in college. Hmm. And what they do is they go with the plausible, and they don't understand the validity test. And a lot of times they'll say things that are quite plausible, and people being what they are, will accept the plausibility of what the police say without ever checking the facts to find out whether it's valid or not. And a lot of times, it's not valid on its face. And I saw this in, in Atlanta. I saw it in Seattle. I, I see it every place I go. Wow. Wow. Do you see that uh, sloppiness with words? Uh, having that much of an impact, negative imp or adverse impact on investigations in other places, have you seen that as well? Well, I, I see it. I see it in criminal cases. That's what you're talking about. I, I, I see it a lot. Uh, for example, I, we, we started meshing the labs, and the fact that the laboratory, when they talked about comparing those fibers, they never did say they matched. They never did. They said they were consistent with. <laughs> or could have been. You follow me? The yes, people sir. took that as gospel, and they weren't. They, I mean, they, yeah, they were consistent, but so were 10,000 other things consistent. You, you see what I'm saying? Yes, sir. And wow. those kind of things go on every day. And I want you to look uh, on uh, some place in the last week, there was an article uh, on the 
CNN, I believe, about crime labs and how bad they are, including the FBI. And, and it's amazing. And those people speak, see, they put on their white coats and they want to walk in there and they're, they're like people doing commercials. I'm a doctor, you know? <laughs> Baloney, you know? <laughs> Folks, I guarantee you in Seattle, for example, they were guessing all the time. Guessing. They had no idea who they were dealing with. They had no idea about the, the identifications. They had no idea about the causes of death. They were guessing. They always guess. And I, that's why I think someplace in the book I said that this, this was more like uh, uh, MASH and was Quincy. <laughs> wow. Wow. I'm... I want to uh, I want to make a request here since you said uh, that individuals uh, a lot of uh, enforcement officials would have benefited if they had taken more uh, logic courses. Uh, could you recommend a book uh, that you think would you know be constructive uh, that deals with logic and and helping people in, get a better grasp or understanding of logic? If you've read any books that deal with that subject matter, I've read some. Most of them were textbooks. I'm trying to think of this one this one book that was. Um, it's called Discretionary Justice. It's by, I think, David Culp, K-U-L-P. And it's not necessarily a logic course, but it, it just talks about discretion and how it's misused in justice. Uh, and it's the same kind of thing. I, I found this. I, I, went, I, I made a, a burglary run one night, and uh, the place had been broken into, and I called on room. He met me there. <coughs> He listened to me for a couple of minutes and said, hey, you need to read this book. Because I, I wouldn't want, know what the hell I was talking about. <laughs> I, seriously. And, and remind me sometimes to tell you about my dad and I. My dad was a, was a cop and I was his boss. But anyway, hmm. anyway, the, this this guy said, I want you to read a book. And he sent me this book by David Culp Hobby. And it's called Discretionary Justice. And it was a real eye-opener for me. And about... 35 years later, I thought, I'm, you know, I need to talk to that guy and tell him how much it meant to me, that, that book, what it, what it meant to my thinking, and, and et cetera. Wow. And, and I called him, and he died the day before. Wow. Can you believe that? I couldn't wow. believe it. And there's another thing that the book goes into, talking about words, that I think is very, very important. And I'm beginning to hear it. I'm beginning to hear it on TV, for example. I wrote about it 30 years ago that why is the wrong question to ask. It's not why something happened. It don't make any difference why. It's how it happened. If, if, you, want, if you want to keep it from happening again or if you want to make it happen again, you've got to know how it happened, not why it happened. And <laughs> the reason I found that out, I was in an in a, in a auditorium taking a chemistry course. I was 17 years old. And the instructor was back there. He was back before we had television set to, to, to see him with, okay? And he made a, a statement, something like this, I'm paraphrasing, that you take two parts of hydrogen and one part of oxygen and you combine them and you get water. And I said, why? And he said, why is a cow? I said, wait a minute, why? He said, I told you, why is a cow? I said, wait a minute, you told me that if I take two parts of hydrogen and one part of oxygen, I put them together, I get water. He said, yeah. Why? He said, 
Why is it counting? That's all I'm going to say. I understood finally, 30 years later. This one I, I, I was able to talk with and tell him what a great pearl that was he gave me that day. Because, wow. because in nature, it doesn't make any difference why something happens. It's going to happen every time. And it's how it happens that makes a difference. And that's one of the reasons that, that, that all the police analysis, the crimes, all that stuff, is bullshit because they talk about why crimes occur instead of how they occur. And, you know, I, I, there are a couple things that I've contributed, and this is one of them, the, the, the how thing. And, I'm, again, I'm seeing it on TV. They're, they're running commercials about it. There's one word, <laughs> and I, can't, I, I get tickled every time I hear it. But another one is back when I was a young cop, the, the, the Bible for police administration uh, was um, uh, the guy from Chicago. I forget his name. Now. Uh, again, I should know it. He wrote a book, and he said that there are two things that must come together for a crime to happen, and that's opportunity and desire. And he said, if, if we concentrate on ending the opportunity or the desire, that we can stop crimes. And I thought, wait a minute, no, that's not right. That's not right. And it dawned on me, the, the, the most important thing you were leaving out, and that was the means. Because I, I'll give you an example. Suppose a guy went to a, a fellow who owned a jewelry store, and he said to the fellow, I said, look, uh, I'd like to break in your, your, in, in your safe, and I'll split it with you. Uh, and the guy said, well, that sounds like a good thing to me. I'll split it with you. He said, and I'll tell you what, he said, i got the perfect time because next week I'm going to be out of town for the weekend. Aha, uh -huh, the opportunity, right? Right. Okay, so both of them wanted to break into the state. Aha, uh -huh, the desire, right? Yes, sir. Okay, so the guy looks at the safety and says, one thing I'm going to need to do is, is, is I'm going to have to get a torch. And, and the owner said, oh, no, 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 no. Let me use a torch in here. You know, I burned my whole building down. He said, well, without the torch, I can't break into the safe. Guys, said, I can't help that. <laughs> and I thought, hey, see, you had the opportunity, you had the desire, but you didn't have the means. And so you didn't have the crime. And mm. if the police would concentrate on ending the means or cutting out the means, they stopped on this crap. Wow. Very, uh, very constructive tidbits there. I definitely uh, appreciate that, particularly the uh, focusing on the how. I know a lot of people who uh, are into practicing justice very much uh, focus, think it is more constructive, much more constructive to focus on the how injustice, uh, how injustice happens uh, and correcting that as opposed to focusing on why because you can end up spending forever on the why and still having unjust things happening uh, as opposed to just focusing on how it The example happens. I always use is, you know, if, if, we had, if somebody hadn't asked the question how, we, our astronauts would have had to swim to the moon because somebody asked the question, how do you keep the two parts of hydrogen and that one part of oxygen from coming together? How do you do that? And somebody said, well, you make a cylinder. Aha! So now we put the oxygen in one cylinder, we put the hydrogen in another cylinder, and we want water, we, we mix them. We want hydrogen to fuel, we use the hydrogen. We want oxygen to breathe, we use the oxygen. And that is a great example of why how is the most important question. 
why did the invasion come? Who cares why they came together? If they came together, you have to swim them out. So anyway, if you if you take the same example and you ask yourself, okay, suppose my problem is to uh, stop contraception and uh, or, or not, I mean, to to use contraception to stop to stop pregnancy. Okay, mm-hmm. and so. You, you ask yourself, why do people have sex? Well, hey, you can't find out. I mean, it, 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 it's, go, it's going to happen. It don't make any difference why. They're going to do it. And so you ask yourself, how? And if you ask yourself how, you can find out how to stop it from, from conceiving. And that's the difference. If you want to solve a problem, if you want to keep it from happening or make it happen, you got to ask how. Outstanding, outstanding. I uh, I plan on getting that, but you said it's uh, discretionary justice. No, it's, uh, I said I think it's William Culp Davis. You got one second? I'll look at the book show here and see if I don't have a copy here. Yeah, it's called Discretionary Justice, a Preliminary Inquiry by Kenneth Culp Davis. And let's see, printed, good God. Louisiana State University Press, Baton Rouge. And I'll find the copyright on it. 1969. Outstanding. Outstanding. I'm. Uh... I'm going to be going to the library later on today to see if I can find that discretionary justice. Um, you really, it really applies uh, in, in racism factors, for example. Discretionary justice really applies. Uh, the the idea of profiling applies uh, to, in discretionary justice. In discretionary justice, you find out that discretion is upside down in the criminal justice system. The people who have the most discretion are the cops on the street. And the reason they do is because they have to make a decision split second, right? Mm-hmm. And if they make a decision not to arrest you, you're not going to jail. If they make a decision not to shoot you, you're not going to die. But if they make a decision to arrest you, you go to jail, and then we have a, a Supreme Court that spends 10 years figuring out whether or not you should be there. Mm-hmm. So the Supreme Court is probably a lot more equipped to use discretion than a cop on the street is. You follow me? So it's upside down. The wow. people with the most discretion are the people that make the biggest decisions. But they're, as what you just said, they are not the people that are most equipped to make a discretion. That's right. They're not. Absolutely not. Okay. First of all, they don't even understand it's a discretionary problem that they're, they're facing. You know, if, if police officers didn't use discretion, they'd never go to headquarters. They'd arrest each other. Think about it. If, they, if the police didn't use discretion, what crimes they um, uh, uh, arrest for, mm-hmm. they'd never go on the street. There are no crimes in the headquarters to keep them busy. <laughs> Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh, so wow. some discretion is called for. Wow. And the idea that, that you know, what police will tell you, that, that, that they'll tell you that we don't have any choice. 
We, we, if, if a person commits a crime, we've got to arrest them. That's BS, and you know that's BS. <laughs> certainly, certainly, certainly. You know, Everybody who – oh, go ahead, sir. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I was gonna, there's another thing that, that had a, a big impact on my thinking that I would recommend you if you can get a copy of it. I, I, I found a copy on the Internet about two, three, four years ago, and I want to make sure I can understand, remember the guy's name. Um, the guy was the, the, the he was the, 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 the guy who did the Sunrise Semester, I think it was, on NBC. And he, at one time, was the, was the chairman of the National Conference of Christian, I mean, I'm sorry, the National Conference of English Instructors, okay? Mm-hmm. And um, I'm trying to think of his name. It'll come to me. He, he delivered a speech one time to the National Congress, and it was, it was the, the keynote speech, and I couldn't believe it because I hope this doesn't offend your your listeners or anything, but it, it's, it's, it's a very meaningful statement. The, 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 the title of the speech was Bullshit and the Art of Crap Detection. Hmm, okay. Meaningful things I've ever read. He starts out by talking about Ernest Hemingway. And he says, you know, he asked Papa Doc one time, he said, how do you get to be an excellent writer? And Papa Doc said, it's easy. You have a built-in foolproof crap detector. And he, he goes on to discuss BS, and, and he labels it. You know, and one of the types he labels is this idea of, of uh, BS uh, with, um, under the cover of, of, um, of knowledge. And he said, you know, like, like preachers and priests and cops, they, they, they have all these badges and all this stuff that say that they're supposed to know what they're talking about. Yes, sir. But they don't, you know. And that's one of the things he said. One of the examples he gives is, is the, the, the school bursar who has who writes a, a, a letter to a person's scholarship that's just been canceled. And the guy says that we're, we're happy to inform you. <laughs> because the guy, he's a school bursar. You don't know the difference. But... The other one, one oh, it's a brilliant damn thing he said. Um, uh, hang on one second. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I can't think of it, but it it it, it it's an example. Well, I know I know what it was. It, it, he was talking about Johnny Carson's show, and who was Ed McMahon? That, that yes, sir. Johnny Carson, he said, inanity is a type of BS. And he said, now, inanity is, you know, uh, like Johnny Carson on on civil rights uh, or um, uh, Ed McMahon on anything, you know. And he said, for example, he said, one night Ed McMahon was talking on Johnny Carson's show, and he said that this the idea of something or other was um, controversial. And um, he said, I wanted to fire a, uh, a telegram to Johnny Carson on stage and ask him if he was fired or against it. Because <laughs> it, 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 was, it was the kind of thing that wasn't controversial at all. 
but he thought he thought he was using the right word when he said it was controversial. But anyway, try to see if you can find that. Neil Postman was the guy's name. Oh, I am a big fan of Neil Postman. Uh, yes. can, can you give us the title again of uh, of this work? And the Art of Crap Detection. It's, it's a speech that he delivered to the National Conference of Teachers of English. Wow. And he, he died a couple of years ago. Wow. And, I, I, big, I, I read uh, Stupid Talk, Crazy Talk, and I also read uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Neil, P- He spends a lot of time talking about the importance of words That's right. and context. I'm a big Neil Postman fan. You can see the kind of people that had an effect on my thinking. Oh, yeah. It, words are extremely important. I, I say that to myself every day. I may sound uh, a little ignorant every now and then, and I am. But I at least recognize words are extraordinarily important, particularly if you uh, are making an effort to pursue justice. Words are critical. Um, I mean, just just like I said with the Wayne Williams uh, trial, I didn't. I don't think I had an understanding for how much uh, of an impact labeling it the Atlanta child murders and just the fact that that's not correct. I don't think I had an understanding for for how much of an impact that had uh, on an adverse impact in terms of blocking people's ability to accurately understand what happened uh, in that situation until I read your book. So I, I definitely will track that down as well. Uh, and like Neil Poe, I mean, you just got to say his name. I'm I'm already on that. I'm a big fan. Um, Mr. Dewey, you, you have hung out with us even went beyond uh, the time I thought I was going to be able to get you. Can you please uh, tell our listeners, tell them your book uh, and where they can get it at, please, sir? Well, the the name of the book is The List, and you can find it, I think, on Amazon, uh, on, um, you find it on eBay a lot of times. Okay. Um, it, it sells usually somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 50 bucks, and I've seen it as high as 175 Wow. But if, if they want to contact you and you contact me, I'll see if they get an autographed copy for $20. Oh, Wow. Wow, listeners, you heard that. If you contact me, you can uh, shoot me an email. Uh, my email address, huggybear at counter-racism.com. One more time, huggybear at counter-racism.com. Shoot me an email. I can get in contact with Mr. Detlinger. He can get you an autographed copy. 20 bucks, he said, autographed copy. Um, please, if you want to uh, give our listeners, I'll give you the final word, uh, just your thoughts on uh, the Atlanta child murders, anything you would like uh, people to reconsider or think about, uh, anything you'd like to say uh, on the Atlanta child murders to close out, please, sir. Well, I, what I want you to do, when you go to bed tonight, I want you, before you go to bed, I want you to write a thousand times, it is not the Atlanta child murder. And not the, what, what should be the uh, accurate title uh, of what uh, The happened? only thing I could ever think of was the Atlanta murders. Because, Atlanta uh, murders, okay. Uh, but again, you know, who knows? Uh, there are a lot of murders in Atlanta, and uh, the, the, the point is that, that that title, the Atlanta Child Murder, is the wrong, it's a misnomer. Mm-hmm. It's wrong. And as long as it's out there, as long as people are thinking about it this way, they can't think correctly. You know, my wife said to me one time, it's impossible to believe and perceive correctly at the same time. And she's absolutely right. And when people perceive this as being a child murder case, they can't understand what actually happened. Mm. There's no way. 
Because you can't believe and perceive at the same time. Mm. Wow. Okay, so n- number one, not the Atlanta child murders. This is the right. Atlanta <laughs> murders. Uh, and any other thoughts that you would give out for our listeners or any other resources that you think they should uh, – See, I, I've seen a couple other books come out uh, recently uh, dealing with this, some of the, uh, I guess, uh, younger children who were living in, a, in Atlanta at the time of this are uh, publishing books about, you know, their thought. I guess it might be a form of uh, uh, a cathartic release in a way of uh, getting out any of the trauma that they had being a child in Atlanta while this was going on. I think Kim Reed is one of the authors that I saw. The name of her book is uh, No Place Safe. Um, and she I read that. Oh, um, you know, <coughs> excuse me. At the time that the list was, was after it was published, uh, I, I forget his name. That a dear, dear person. Uh, he was the, the critic, the, the movie critic for the Los Angeles Times, mm. and he wrote a, a criticism of the movie, and he he, he talked about the book. And he bemoaned the loss of trees because he said that this case had been just steamrolled by the media. There wasn't anything I could say in that book that people didn't already hear about. And um, he was wrong, you know. And it's an amazing thing how people they, they conceive of it incorrectly, they come to the wrong conclusion. And they're satisfied with their conclusion. And I can't help it. I don't think Wayne Williams should be in the penitentiary. But and he'll probably stay there the rest of his life. Wow. Wow. Do you, well, I guess I'll ask. Do you think? Uh, do you think individuals, uh, be it in the police department or any individuals in the city of Atlanta, do you think? Uh, there was was and may still be a benefit to being able to say, hey, on the records, we have a conviction for the so-called Atlanta child murders. Uh, the convict is Wayne Williams. He's been in jail, and he's going to be in jail. End of story. Do you think it served the interest of individuals in Atlanta to see this case come to a close, to have someone convicted so that we can say this is all over with? If you want to use the past tense, it did serve. Yes, it did. It absolutely did. Almost all of the people involved in this case from the Atlanta Police Department ended up promoted. Huh. Uh, Lee Brown, who, who couldn't find the Chattahoochee River on a map. <laughs> I'm serious. He couldn't. He, he became the chief of police in Houston, Texas. Finally ended up being the drug, star, the drug czar in the, Kennedy, in the uh, Clinton administration. Wow. Um, the, the, the guy who was the head of the task force, who... You know, they called me in one time to to, to question me as, as a suspect in the murders, and um, there were two of them. They were co-heads. One was one was the Robbie Hamrick, and he was with the GBI, and the other one, that guy's name, I, it's just, these names just flit out of my mind. Anyway, he was the chief of police, or he was the, the uh, Atlanta police, uh, Redding, Morris Redding. He was the Atlanta police um, chief, assistant chief who was assigned to the task force. They called me in, and they, they, they sat me down at the table. And the first thing, you know, I, I, the first thing I saw 
was this, this key flapping in the breeze. <laughs> when I went to the door, I said, you know, that's the key to the task force. The task force is the most secretive undercover operation. Well, I wonder if I stole that key. Well, <laughs> put me in jail. You know, so I left the key go. So I sat down at the desk. They asked me to sit down. They started asking me questions. Well, they didn't have, they didn't give me my rights. Hmm. You're finished, right? Excuse me? I just got this note that somebody is something or other again. I don't care. Anyway, I'll, I'll finish it up for you. Um, so they, they didn't give me, they didn't read my Miranda rights. I wow. Thought, I think I think what I'll do is just jump up and say I did it and leave. <laughs> <laughs> no, they'll shoot you, you know. So anyway, um, one of them asked me, where were you on the night of so-and-so and such-and-such? And and I thought about it a minute. I said, oh, yeah. I said, that, that was the night that uh, Luby Jeter disappeared, uh, blah, blah, blah. And he said, was it? I don't know. He looked up at this chart, and he asked, he said, do you know? And he asked the other guy, yeah, he, do you know? He said, no, I don't know. I said, oh, my God, here we are with, with the two guys in charge of the investigation, the most wonderful investigation in the world, and they don't know the answer to the question they're asking. Wow. You know, and and I, that's, that's a no-no. You, you don't do that. So anyway, they, um, they asked me, why, why haven't you communicated this stuff to us? And I said, hey, I, I've given it to anybody who would listen. You know, I give it to him. I, I give it to Dick Hand. He's a, you know, I give, I give it to, uh, uh, I, anyway. So um, he said, well, we've been watching you for a long time. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah, you know what the next word were out of his mouth? At the time, at the time I was teaching or running a, a police academy and, and teaching criminal justice in, in Floyd Peter College in Rome. And Rome was 80 miles from my house because mm. I commuted every day. Wow. So he asked me, so as soon as he said, we've been watching you very closely for a long time, he said, by the way, Chet, said, do you still live in Atlanta or are you living in Rome now? Think about it. Wow. Anyway, I, you know, I could go on about this subject all week. I know I, I'm really sorry about my voice. Oh, no, sir. I, I completely understand. I I'm, thank you for uh, hanging in there with us and being patient. Um I have greatly uh, appreciated being able to talk to you. Like I said, this uh, I, I certainly am far from an expert uh, on this subject matter, but uh, it has been something that's been uh, a definite interest of mine for a long time, and it's a, it's a real pleasure. Uh, it was a pleasure to read your book first and foremost, and then to uh, actually be able to sit and uh, chat with you about the subject in person has been a uh, it's been a real treat for me, and I, I thank you immensely, sir. You're sure welcome, my friend. For sure. If uh, again, if I get uh, any emails, I will definitely get in contact with you. Autograph book from Mr. Chet Bettlinger. Um, I'd like to thank you for uh, calling the show, and and perhaps uh, I can contact you. We can uh, talk again at some point uh, about this case. I'm, I'm sure there uh, are a ton of other details that uh, we didn't even get to today. Hey, you boy, you're right about that. Yeah, you <laughs> call me. Okay. Yes, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Email is the best way to get in touch with me. By the way. Okay. I'll talk to you later. Yes, sir. I thank you so much. Bye-bye. All right. All right. Groovy, I would like to thank everyone for uh, tuning in to The Cows, Context of White Supremacy. This is Gus, uh, first show back, uh, long hiatus. Uh, we have future shows 
getting ready to uh, talk to some other folks. Uh, our future shows will probably be addressing racism, white supremacy directly, but I did want to uh, deal with the Atlanta child murders, excuse me, the Atlanta murders case. That is a special interest of mine. And, uh, I mean, as you heard, racism is uh, a pretty closely tied to the events that took place in Atlanta during the early 1980s. Uh, at any rate, please uh, favorite me as a host, comment on the show, tell other folks about the show. Please check out the blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com. I'll give it to you one more time, racism-notes.blogspot.com. Uh, check out the blog, leave comments. Uh, also check out the code.net and check out counter-racism.com. Lots of constructive information. Um, looking to do more to replace white supremacy with justice to be effective. Love what Mr. Detlinger said. It is not the why, it is the how. How. And that's one thing we want to focus on on this show. How to replace white supremacy with justice and how racism white supremacy works uh deception and direct violence we want to address that on this show and what to do to combat that we will be back for more again favorite the show leave comments thank you so much gus signing out thank you hello it is ryan and i was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com i looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.